This is part eight, volume one, of the new and complete Newgate calendar, read by Roy Schreiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Account of Richard Oakey, John Levy, and Matthew Flood, who were hanged for a robbery. Richard Oakey was a native of London, and bound apprentice to a tailor, with whom he served about two years, and then, running away, got into company of a set of blackguard boys who procured a miserable subsistence by picking of pockets, and then they proceeded to the practice of cutting off the pockets of women. In order to do this effectually, one of them used to trip up the woman's heels while the other cut off the pocket, and they generally got out of reach of detection before the party robbed could recover her legs. These kinds of robberies were very common formerly, but of late years they have been very seldom practised. Many of Oakey's associates, belonging to Jonathan Wilde's gang, that infernal villain had caused several of them to be hanged when he could make no farther advantage of them. Having thus lost his old acquaintance, he became connected with a woman of town, who taught him the following singular method of robbery. They used to walk through the streets, the woman going a little before Oki. When she observed a lady walking near where a coach was turning, she used to catch her arms, crying, Take care, madam, you will be run over. And in the interim, Oki was certain to cut off her pocket. But this way of life did not last long, for this abandoned woman soon after died in consequence of some bruises she received from a fellow she had ill-treated and on her death Oki followed the practice of snatching pockets without a partner, and became one of the most dexterous in his profession. Not long after this he became acquainted with several housebreakers, who persuaded him to follow their course of life as more profitable than stealing of pockets. In the first attempt they were successful, but the second, in which two others were concerned with him, was the breaking open a shop in the borough, from whence they stole a quantity of calamanicos, for which offence Oki was apprehended, on which he impeached his accomplices, one of whom was hanged, and the other transported on his evidence. Deterred from thoughts of house-breaking by this adventure, Oki returned for a while to his old employment, and then became acquainted with a man called Will the Sailor, when their plan of robbery was this, Will, who wore a sword, used to affront persons in the streets, and provoke them till they stripped to fight with him, and then Oki used to decamp with their clothes. However, these associates in iniquity soon quarrelled and parted, and Oki, who by this time was an accomplished thief, entered into Jonathan Wilde's gang. John Levy was the son of a French gentleman who resided some time in England during the reign of King Charles the Second and taught the French language to three natural sons of that prince. But he retired to Holland, and there died soon after the advancement of King William to the throne. Young Levy was educated at the expense of the French Protestants in London, and was then bound apprentice to a captain in the Royal Navy. He served as a sailor for some years, and was present at the defeat of the Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean in Queen Anne's reign and afterwards sailed under Admiral Norris in his fruitless expedition against the Russian fleet in the Baltic, 
when the admiral came back to england levy's friends recommended him to the service of a merchant in thames street in the capacity of under clerk for which he was not ill qualified but being too unsettled a temper to apply himself to business he declined this opportunity of providing for himself and soon spent the little money he was possessed of going one evening to a public-house in holborn he met with some thieves of jonathan wild's gang who soon persuaded him to join them in their lawless depredations which at length brought him to destruction matthew flood was the son of parents of good character and born at shadwell he was apprenticed to a lighterman with whom he lived a considerable time but being averse to a life of labour his master and he parted by joint consent and soon afterwards he became acquainted with oki levy and their dissolute companions the robberies committed by this gang are too numerous for recital they were for some time the terror of travellers near london we shall mention only one robbery exclusive of that for which they suffered they stopped a coach between camberwell and london in which were five men and a woman the men said they would deliver their money but begged they would not search as the woman was with child among the gang was blueskin who holding a hat received the money the passengers put into it which appeared to be a considerable sum but on examination it was found to be chiefly haypence the gang suspected that blueskin had defrauded them as it was not the first time he had cheated his fellow thieves but they were greatly mortified that they had neglected to search the coach when they afterwards learnt that there were three hundred pounds in it some time after this oki levy flood and blueskin stopped colonel cope and mr young in a carriage on their return from hampstead and robbed them of their watches rings and money information of this robbery was sent to jonathan wild who caused the parties to be apprehended and blueskin being admitted in evidence they were tried convicted sentenced and ordered for execution after conviction their behaviour was exceedingly proper for persons in their calamitous situation they did not flatter themselves with vain hopes of a pardon but exerted themselves by every act of devotion to make a proper preparation for their approaching end at the last scene of their lives they addressed the spectators advising them to take warning by their fatal end oki said that what gave him more concern than all his other offences was the burning of a will which he found with some money and rings in a pocket which he had cut from a lady's side a circumstance which had proved highly detrimental to the owner these offenders suffered at tyburn on the eighth of february seventeen twenty three singular case of alexander day who was convicted of defrauding several tradesmen in modern times we have had several instances of villains who have proceeded on a similar plan with day but as few of them have cut so great a figure nor any of them met with a fate exactly similar we shall be the more particular in our account of this artful villain day was a professed sharper who pretended to be a man of fortune he assumed the title of marmaduke davenport esquire and taking a large house in queen's square asserted 
that he possessed a capital estate in the north of England. He had a footman who seems to have been an accomplice with him. This man he sent to a livery stable to inquire the price of a pair of horses which he himself afterwards agreed to purchase, and then desired the stable-keeper to recommend a coachman, a man rather lusty as he had a suit of livery clothes of a large size by him. The man was accordingly recommended, but when the livery was tried on, Day observed that as they did not fit him, he would send into the country for his own coachman. But this objection was obviated by the footman, who saying that the clothes would fit with a small alteration, the squire consented to hire the man. When the stable-keeper saw the coachman he had recommended, he inquired to what places he had driven his new master, and being informed to the Duke of Montague's and other persons of rank, he seemed satisfied, though he had began to form ideas unfavourable to his new customer. Mr. Day, having kept this coach and horses something more than a week, gave orders to be driven to a coffee-house in Red Lion Square, where he drank half a pint of wine at the bar, and asked if some gentlemen were come whom he expected to dinner. Being answered in the negative, he went out the back door without paying for his wine, and said he would return in a few minutes. The coachman waited a long time, but his master not coming back, he drove to, to the stable-keepers, who seemed glad to have recovered his property out of such dangerous hands. It seems that Day made no small use of this coach while it was in his possession. He drove to the shop of a lace-merchant named Gravestock, and asked for some Spanish point. But the dealer, having none of that kind by him, the squire ordered fifty-five pounds worth of gold lace to be sent to his house in Queen's Square. When Gravestock's servant carried the lace, Day desired him to tell his master to call, as he was in want of lace for some rich liveries, but he must speak with his tailor before he could ascertain the quantity wanted. Mr. Gravestock attended his new customer, who gave him so large an order for lace, that if he had executed it he must have been a very considerable loser, and the squire's liveries would have been gayer than those of any nobleman in London. However, on the following day, he carried some lace of the sort he had left before, nor did he forget to take his bill with him. But the person who should have paid it was decamped. The next trick practised by our adventurer was as follows. He went to the house of Mr. Markham, a goldsmith, and ordered a gold equipage worth fifty pounds. Markham carried home the equipage, and had the honour to drink tea with the supposed Mr. Davenport, who ordered other curious articles, and among the rest a chain of gold for his squirrel. Mr. Markham, observing that the squirrel wore a silver chain which he had sold a lady not long before, began to suspect his new customer, and waiting on the lady, inquired if she knew Marmaduke Davenport, Esquire. She answered in the negative, on which Markham mentioned the circumstance that had arisen and described the person of the defrauder. The lady now recollected him, and said his name was Alexander Day, and that he had cheated her of property to a considerable amount. 
In consequence of this information, Markham arrested the sharper and recovered his property. On another occasion, Day went in his carriage to the shop of a linen draper named Scrimshaw, agreed for linen to the amount of forty-eight pounds, and ordered a large quantity to be sent to his house on the following day, when he would pay for the whole. The first parcel was delivered, but the purchaser was decamped when the linen draper went with the second. After this he went to the shop of a tea-dealer named Kendrick, and ordered tea to the amount of twenty-six pounds. The tea was sent in, and the proprietor called for payment when Day gave him orders for a farther quantity, which he pretended to have forgot before, and told him to call the next morning when he should be paid for it by the steward. The honest tea-dealer called the next day, but neither the squire nor the steward were to be found. His next adventure was contrived to defraud Mr. Hinchcliffe, a silk-mercer, Day going to his shop in his absence, left word for him to call at his house to receive a large order. The merchant went and saw a carriage at the door, and being told that the squire had company, he waited a short time, during which the servants took care to inform him that Mr. Davenport was the son of a baronet of Yorkshire, and possessed a large fortune in that county. When he saw the supposed Mr. Davenport, he was told that he wanted some valuable silks, and wished that a quantity might be sent for him to select such as he approved. Mr. Hinchcliffe said that the choice would be much better made by fixing on the patterns at his shop. Hereupon Day took the mercer in his coach, and on their way he talked of his father, Sir Marmaduke, and of other people of rank, and said he was on the point of marriage with the daughter of Councillor Ward, and as he should be under necessity of furnishing a house in London, he should want mercery goods to a large amount. When they came to the mercer's shop, Day selected as many damasks and etc. for bed furniture and hangings as were worth a thousand pounds. It looks as if Hinchcliffe now had some suspicion, for he told him that ladies are best judges of such articles, and asked if he had not a lady of acquaintance whom he could consult. He readily answered that he had, and mentioned a Lady Davenport as his relation, saying, quote, Send the silks to my house, and I will take her opinion of them. End quote. Mr. Hinchcliffe said he would send them and permitted him to take with him two pieces of brocade worth about thirty pounds. But desirous to know more of his customer before he trusted him with the whole property, he went to Councillor Ward, and found that his daughter was already married to a gentleman of the name of Davenport. Hereupon the mercer went to the house of the supposed esquire, but he was gone off with what property he had obtained. It was likewise discovered that our adventurer, having casually met at a coffee-house the Mr. Davenport, who had married the daughter of Councillor Ward, had prevailed on him to call him cousin, on pretense that they must be related, because, as he alleged, their coats of arms were the same. After a course of fraud, Day was taken into custody in the month of May, 1723, on suspicion of having robbed the mail, but it proved 
that he was not the man. However, there were six indictments brought against him for the defrauds. In his defence he pleaded that his intention was to have paid for the goods he purchased on credit, and he asserted that he possessed an estate in the county of Durham which he had mortgaged for twelve hundred pounds, but no credit could be given to his allegations, nor, even if he had possessed such an estate, would it have appeared that he acted on honest principle. After a fair trial he was convicted, and sentenced to suffer two years' imprisonment in Newgate, to stand twice in the pillory, to pay a fine of two hundred pounds, and to give security for his good behaviour for two years after the term of his imprisonment should he expire. Case of William Hawksworth, who was executed for murder. This malefactor was a native of Yorkshire, and was born of reputable parents, who gave him such an education as was proper to qualify him for a considerable trade. But being of a disposition too unsettled to think of business, he enlisted for a soldier, in hope of being promoted in the army. After he had served some time, and found himself disappointed in his expectation of preferment, he made interest to obtain his discharge, and then entered into the service of a gentleman with whom he behaved in a proper manner for a considerable time. But not being content with his situation, he repaired to London, and again enlisted as a soldier in the foot guards. In this situation he remained four years, during two of which he was servant to the colonel, who entertained a very good opinion of him, till an incident which unexpectedly arose occasioned the crime for which he suffered. Before we relate the particulars, it will be proper to remark that at the period of which we are writing party disputes ran very high, and soldiers frequently were the subject of the contempts and derision of the populace. While Hawksworth was marching with other soldiers to relieve the guard in St. James's Park, a man named Ransom, who had a woman in his company, jostled him and cried, What a stir is there about King George's soldiers! Hawksworth, imagining the woman had incited him to this behavior, quitted his rank and gave her a blow on the face. Irritated hereby, Ransom called him a puppy, and demanded the reason of his behaviour to the woman. The term of reproach enraged Hawksworth to such a degree that he knocked the other down with his musket, and then the soldiers marched on to relieve the guard. In the meantime a crowd of people gathered round Ransom, and finding he was much wounded, put him in a chair and sent him to a surgeon who examined him, and found his skull fractured to such a degree that there was no hopes of his recovery, and he died in a few hours. Hereupon a person, who had been witness to what passed in the park, went to the Savoy, and having learnt the name of the offender, caused Hawksworth to be taken into custody, and he was committed to Newgate. Being brought to trial at the following sessions, the colonel, whom he had served, gave him an excellent character. But the facts were so clearly proved that the jury could not do otherwise than convict him, and judgment of death was passed accordingly. For some time after sentence he flattered himself with the hope of a reprieve. 
but when the warrant for his execution arrived, he seemed to give up all hopes for life, and seriously prepared himself to meet his fate. He solemnly averred that ransom struck him first, and said he did not recollect the circumstance of leaving his rank to strike the blow that occasioned the death of the other. He declared that he had no malice against the deceased, and therefore thought himself acquitted in his own mind of the crime of murder. However, he behaved in a very contrite manner, and received the sacrament with signs of sincerest devotion. A few minutes before he was executed, he made a speech to the surrounding multitude, advising them to keep a strict guard over their passions. He lamented the situation of the common soldiers, who were considered as cowards if they did not resent an injury, and, if they did, are liable to endure legal punishment for consequences that may arise from such resentment. However, he advised his brethren of the army to submit with patience to the indignities that might be offered, and trust to the goodness of God to recompense their sufferings. He was executed at Tyburn on the 17th of June, 1723, at age 27 years. Particulars respecting Thomas Atho, Sr., and Thomas Atho, Jr., who were hanged for murder. The crime for which these men were tried was committed in Pembrokeshire, but they were removed by writ of habeas corpus to Hereford, where, on the 19th of March, 1723, they were indicted for the murder of George Merchant, by beating and kicking him on the head, face, breast, and etc., on the 23rd of November, 1722, and thereby giving him several mortal wounds and bruises, of which he died the same day. Atho the Elder was a native of Carew, in Pembrokeshire, where he rented above a hundred pounds per annum, and had lived in such a respectable way, that in the year 1720 he was chosen mayor of Tenby, and his son a bailiff of the same corporation, though they did not live in this place, but in Manorbeer, two miles distant from it. George Merchant, who was murdered, and his brother Thomas, were nephews by the mother's side to the elder Atho, their father having married his sister. On the 23rd of November, 1722, a fair was held at Tenby, where the prisoners went to sell cattle, and there met the deceased and his brother Thomas Merchant, and a quarrel arose between the younger Atho and George Merchant on an old grudge respecting their right to part of an estate. When a battle ensued in which the deceased had the advantage and beat young Atho, the elder Atho, taking the advice of an attorney on what had passed, he would have persuaded him to bring an action, to which he replied, no, no, we won't take the law, but we'll pay them in their own coin. Late in the evening, after the fair was ended, the deceased and his brother left the town, but the Athos, going to the inn, inquired of the ostler which way they were gone. He gave them the best information in his power, on which they immediately mounted and followed them. The brothers stopped on the road at a place called Holloway's Water to let their horses drink. In the meantime they heard the footsteps 
of other horses behind them, and turning about, saw two men riding at a small distance. It was too dark for them to know the parties, but they presently heard the voice of old Atho. Knowing that he had sworn revenge, and dreading the consequence that would probably ensue, they endeavoured to conceal themselves behind a bridge, but they were discovered by the splashing of their horses' feet made in the water. The Athos, riding up with large sticks, the younger said to George Merchant, I owe thee a pass, and now thou shalt have it, and immediately knocked him off his horse. In the interim, old Atho attacked Thomas Merchant, and beat him likewise from his horse, calling out at the same time, Kill the dogs! Kill the dogs! The brothers begged hard for their lives, but they pleaded to those who had no idea of pity. The elder Atho seized Thomas Merchant in the tenderest part, and squeezed him in so violent a manner that human nature could not long have sustained the pain, while the younger Atho treated George Merchant in a similar way, and carried his revenge to such a length that it is not possible to relate the horrid deed with decency. And when he had completed his execrable purpose, he called out to his father, saying, Now we've done George Merchant's business. A great effusion of blood was the consequence of his barbarity, but it seems that his savage revenge was not yet glutted, for, seizing the deceased by the nose with his teeth, he bit it off, and then strangled him by tying a handkerchief tight round his neck. This being done, the murderers quitted the spot, but some persons coming by took the merchants to the adjacent house and sent for a surgeon, who dressed the wounds of Thomas, but found that George was dead, and the surgeon declared that the blows he received were sufficient to have killed six or seven men, for he had two bruises on his breast, three large ones on his head, and twenty-two on his back. The elder Atho was taken into custody on the following day, but the son had fled to Ireland. However, those who had been concerned in favouring his escape were glad to use their endeavours to bring him back again. On trial, the principal evidence against them was the surviving brother, who was even then so weak as to be indulged to sit while he gave his evidence. But the jury, though satisfied, of the commission of the murder, entertained a doubt whether the prisoners could be legally tried in any county but that in which the crime was committed, on which they brought in a special verdict, whereupon the case was referred to the determination of the twelve judges, and the prisoners, being brought up to London, were committed to King's Bench Prison where they remained until the 22nd of June, 1723, and were then taken to the court of King's Bench in Westminster Hall. When a motion being made by counsel in arrest of judgment, the court directed that an act of the 33rd of Henry VIII should be read, in which is a clause ordaining that, quote, all murders and robberies committed in on or about the borders of Wales, shall be triable in any county in England where the criminal shall be taken, and that the court of King's Bench 
shall have power to remove by writ of habeas corpus any prisoner confined in Wales to the next county in England to be tried. End quote. In consequence hereof, the court proceeded to give judgment, and the prisoners were remanded to King's Bench Prison. Between this and the time of their execution, they were visited by Mr. Deitch, the chaplain of the prison, and by several other divines. They continued to flatter themselves with hopes of life, till the warrant came down for their execution, and endeavoured to extenuate their crime by a variety of frivolous pretences respecting disputes between them and the deceased. On the 28th of June they received the sacrament with great devotion, and did the same again on the morning of their execution. Their behaviour at the place of death may not be improperly given nearly in the words of the minister who attended them. Quote, on Friday, the 5th of July, 1723, about eleven o'clock in the morning, they were conveyed in a cart to the place of execution. When they came to the fatal tree, they behaved themselves in a very decent manner, embracing each other with the utmost tenderness and affection. And indeed, the son's hiding his face, bedewed with tears in his father's bosom, was, notwithstanding the barbarous action they had committed, a very moving spectacle. They begged of all good people to take warning by their ignominious death, and were turned off, crying, Lord, have mercy on us! Christ, have mercy on us! The bodies were brought from the place of execution in two hearses to the Falcon Inn in Southwark, in order to be buried in St. George's churchyard. End quote. They were executed at a place called St. Thomas's Watering, a little beyond Kent Street in Surrey, the father being fifty-eight years old, and the son within one day of twenty-four at the time of their deaths. The end of Part 8, Volume 1 of the New and Complete Newgate Calendar.